Hello, and welcome to the Did You Know Crypto podcast. Today, I'm very excited to be welcoming Pierre Richard, who is one of the hosts of the Noted podcast, who is also part of the Nakamoto Institute, and is a Bitcoin maximalist and just all around really knowledgeable person in this space. And he is going to be the second guest that I'm going to be having on for a series that's kind of outlining the scaling debate. Uh, this interview was very, very interesting, and I really enjoy talking to people that have different viewpoints than I do, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. And really quick, if you could head over to iTunes or wherever you're listening to this episode on and leave a rating or review, I'd really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy the show. Today, I'd like to welcome Pierre Richard, host of the Noted Podcast, which everyone should subscribe to right now. He's also the co-founder of the Nakamoto Institute and an unstoppable proponent of Bitcoin. And I'm delighted to have him on the podcast. Pierre, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And the, the purpose of this series is to lay out kind of multiple viewpoints from each side of the scaling debate so that, you know, new people to this space uh, kind of can listen to a semi-long form explanation of people's views get different viewpoints from from the same um, side of the debate and kind of be able to understand more in depth why each individual has taken that position um, that they have. And I think, though, before we go into that, I think it, the most important question to kind of help establish a framework for understanding this is, you know, what is Bitcoin and how do you define it? Uh, well, so that's tough because uh, Bitcoin actually ends up referring to several different things. Um, so we have like the Bitcoin peer-to-peer -peer network, and that's, you know, started out with one node, which was Satoshi's and then, or uh, Satoshi Nakamoto's node. Uh, and then you had Hal Finney's node. And, you know, from there, it kind of multiplied into this big living organism uh, called the Bitcoin network. Um, so that's kind of like on the peer-to-peer -peer level. Uh, and then you have the actual unit, like one Bitcoin is 100 million Satoshis. Um, so that's that's like, and in, in the Bitcoin source code, those, those are called coins. They're not actually called Bitcoins. Um, it would probably have been even more confusing if we'd started calling things coins because, you know, people who are not into Bitcoin would be confused as to why we're not handing them a, a gold nickel or something like that. Um, but uh, so, yeah, those, that's kind of like the, the major dichotomy. But then you also, if you really like uh, pull, you know, split hairs, uh, the you've got the Bitcoin network and you have the Bitcoin consensus and you have the Bitcoin protocol. You have what people think the Bitcoin protocol should be versus like what's actually implemented. Um, and you have the Bitcoin community, the Bitcoin culture, the Bitcoin ethos. Uh, there's just a lot of different things that Bitcoin, uh, the Bitcoin diet as well. Uh, the, yeah, it refers to a lot of different things and it's a lot of different things to different people. Um, so I like to say that like, you'll find in Bitcoin whatever you're looking for and whatever you're putting into it. So, uh, and that's just based on my own observations of different people operating 
in this space is that uh, if if they have a very negative attitude towards Bitcoin, then they kind of end up being on the receiving end of a lot of negativity from Bitcoiners um, and vice versa. Like I've seen people who have been very constructive and you know have helped build up Bitcoin and they have been the recipients of a lot of positive energy from Bitcoiners and uh, and positive outcomes for, you know, whether it's their careers or uh, their their own work. So it's, yeah, that's kind of my feeling as well is that it's kind of not so much just the technology, right, that uh, people usually associate it with, but it's kind of grown a, you know, a culture, I guess you could say a society in a way around it as well. Yeah, and it's weird because it's like, well, we don't really have this for the U.S. dollar. Like, there are people who work at the Federal Reserve and who worship the Federal Reserve, but uh, you, you don't have this same kind of energy as you do around or with Bitcoin. Yeah, there's not anybody spending hours a day on Twitter, um, other than maybe Nuriel Rabini uh, defending yeah. the Fed. But um, uh, you know, I. I I wanted to kind of get into the the scaling debate right away. So uh, I was wondering if you could give a brief overview of the scaling debate as you saw it, as you participated in it. Uh, yeah. So very, I mean, when I first got interested in Bitcoin, what really caught my attention was Bitcoin's monetary policy of, you know, building up to having only 21 million Bitcoins. And, that is what I saw as its central value proposition, not really the like cheap instant payments. So already, I think I was predisposed to having a certain view on the scaling debate. Um, and when when I first uh, started using Bitcoin, I didn't really understand that there were different wallets available. And so I just downloaded like the Bitcoin wallet is what I thought I was downloading, which was the Bitcoin full node plus wallet. Um, and I just downloaded that on my laptop and it synced, you know, in a few days. And I didn't really think anything of it. I was like, okay, well, this is just like how it works. Um, and yeah, from there, um, I remember reading i i mean i obviously did a lot of research uh when i was first like going down the bitcoin rabbit hole and reading about uh this one megabyte uh block size limit and thinking that that was kind of a sensible like it was advertised as being a, a denial of service prevention mechanism where like okay a miner can't just mine a massive block and cause all the other nodes to not be able to process it and to crash or whatever um, so it made sense to me in that regard. Um, and over time, as I learned more about how the Bitcoin system works and I came to understand that, uh, the, the only way that 21 million Bitcoins, um, is really a credible commitment is if we have the ability to, um, essentially replace the block reward with, uh, transaction fees. And, then the debate was kind of about, well, do you replace it by having a high number of low value transaction fees or a fewer number of high value transaction fees? Um, and you could kind of contrast like, like for example, 
uh, Lamborghini. You know, they might have like a limited edition sports car uh, and that's how they maximize revenue versus Volkswagen, which mass produces cars and that's how they maximize revenue. They don't, they don't try to be scarce uh, that way. Um, and so it's, it's kind of two different ways of, of, uh, of conceiving of a product and of its pricing strategy. And my background was uh, in business and uh, I got my accounting major. Um, so I'd taken like different marketing classes and whatnot. And so it made sense to me that uh, if Bitcoin's value proposition is unique, uh, then it doesn't actually really matter how how high transaction fees are. People will be willing to pay them uh, because you, the Bitcoin network itself has a monopoly over the uh, sending of the underlying asset of Bitcoins. Um, and so already I was kind of tilted in favor of having an approach where uh, artificial scarcity of block space would cause transaction fees to be bid up uh, and you know higher than they otherwise would be. Uh, and that that would be the way to maximize total revenue uh, because uh, demand is inelastic or relatively inelastic. Um, now, granted, like I, I also, uh, I, and I continue to have the view that eventually we will increase the what's now the block weight limit, um, but uh, we should do it based on uh, demand out outweighing supply rather than supply trying to stay ahead of demand. Um, and uh, the the main argument against that is that uh, so like if 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 someone grants that yes you know eventually we will have to phase out transact or have to phase out the block reward and have transaction fees become get higher um, that we want to have the ecosystem slowly adapt to this reality rather than running into a hard limit and um, the. The counter argument is like, well, we want to break expectations of cheap transactions on this network sooner rather than later because it's only going to get worse as people build more and more businesses on top of uh, this settlement layer. Um, they're going to have the rug pulled out from under them when finally uh, this this issue uh, comes to a head and we can't kick down the can down the road in, indefinitely. Um, and... So we kind of saw what the consequences of that were last year uh, when we we did hit the block weight limit and uh, people were really competing with each other to get into blocks. I think that the median fee got as high as $35 uh, transaction for like the typical transaction. Um, so that, clearly that that proved out that the demand is indeed inelastic uh, and uh, that a artificial scarcity of, of block space uh, is is a viable solution. Um, anyway, that was kind of my economic perspective. There's also an engineering perspective, which I think is important, and it's it kind of it's a combination of engineering and economics, which is that uh, by increasing the cost of running a Bitcoin full node, uh, you at the margin decrease the number of Bitcoin full nodes running and keeping up with the uh, chain tip and uh that that's fine you know within certain parameters and uh, you know i i think it's fine today uh, other people think that the block weight limit is too high today and that we need to soft fork it lower 
Um, I, I, I kind of, I tend to disagree with that perspective, although I'm, I'm very sympathetic to it. Um, I think that, uh, the, but basically if you can run a Bitcoin full node on a you know, reasonably like $200 hardware setup, let's say, uh, that that seems to me a, a certain threshold where you have thousands of people running this and it makes it uh, decentralized, and I think that's that's where we want to be at. And I, I talk about the hardware, but really the main issue is the uh, bandwidth and uh, access to bandwidth. Uh, I think that it's definitely improving. Like I just got FiOS installed, so I've got you know gigabit internet, whatever. Uh, and it's, it's fast, but, uh, I, I realize I'm on the kind of cutting edge there and it's kind of a part of living in New York is that you might get access to this sooner than other parts of the country or of the world, especially. Um, but as, as Fios and as, um, you know, wireless, uh, wireless internet continue to increase and high bandwidth wireless internet, especially, um, that's going to change and eventually it'll, it'll, the economics of running a full node will continue to improve, uh, and eventually we'll have enough breathing space where, okay, it makes sense from a decentralization perspective to increase the block weight limit at the margin and to increase Bitcoin's on-chain capacity. Um, so yeah, I, I've kind of been rambling. I don't know if that answers your question. No, no, that, that's great. I was actually uh, I wanted to mention we, we talked on on Twitter a little bit uh, about how you said you were actually in favor of bigger blocks. I think you kind of explained that a little bit. But were you? Did you mean you know in in the sense of eventually, or did you mean that you were actually in in, in favor of a of a block size increase last fall? Oh, eventually. Okay. I, I was uh, very strongly opposed to the increase last fall of... Um, no, well, that's what so I there, thought. Yeah, so I just yeah, but sure. it's kind of It's kind of uh, challenging because basically I was opposed to the capacity increase that we got from SegWit and I was opposed to the uh, so-called 2x hard fork, which would have doubled the block weight limit from 4 million units, weight units, to 8 million weight units. Um, and that was a hard fork. Uh, but I was also opposed to the SegWit capacity increase, but I kind of capitulated on that rather quickly because I realized that uh, there was no way I was going to get people to agree with me. Um, and so, yeah, but eventually we'll want to do a hard fork to increase the block weight limit as well. Uh, but that's just not in the foreseeable future. Yeah, that, that was something I remember listening to Jameson Lop as well was that... Um... You know, once Lightning is, you know, fully on board, I mean, eventually after all the different kinds of um, aggregators have been implemented, there will be a, a need for it at some time. But uh, uh, Giacomo actually um, disagreed that, that that would ever be needed or was was skeptical of it. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree to disagree with Giacomo on that. Um, unless there's like uh, some, you know, really out there, uh, innovative engineering breakthrough that happens. Um, I, I think that we'll eventually have a hard fork for a capacity increase. Just as a, as a thought experiment, I mean, what, what would be kind of a, a ballpark fee limit where you think that, I mean, roughly speak, I mean, I know that it would be kind of, uh, uh, driven by the network and driven by, you know, um, 
uh, a demand and everything. But what what would be a rough ballpark where you kind of go like, yeah, I think probably about X would be where we probably should start uh, maybe considering it. Well, I really, I mean, it's tough because I don't think that 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 is the metric that we can target. I think okay. that metric is actually an outcome of what we do target. And so I think that um, targeting, having a, a mempool that is always has a you know consistent backlog um, is, is important. And so they're already like, we're, uh, the mempool, it, it, it occasionally spikes, but it, broadly speaking, it's been empty uh, since the uh, big run-up in uh, December of 2017. So I would really want to see a mempool that is backed up for at least 18 months uh, and then kind of look holistically both, yeah, at what is the kind of the dollar price of sending the typical on-chain transaction, um, but also, how is that impacting the Lightning Network and the opening and closing of channels? Uh, and how is bandwidth, how is uh, internet service rollout happening glo- globally? How how has that evolved since the last time we took a look at it? Um, and kind of looking at the bigger picture uh, rather than trying to target a specific uh, fee itself. Okay. Uh, I, I wanted to ask, I mean, part of this was I was, I, I wanted to kind of put to, you know, the people um, on, on both sides of the debate, kind of some of the arguments or I guess in a way um, that the other side argues for. So, I mean, one of them I wanted to, to ask was that there's a big uh, focus with big block uh, folks on, you know, the Satoshi's vision that, you know, whatever you want to call that. Right. So I, what influence should, the white paper and his writings have on Bitcoin now? Is that, you know, relevant per se, or is it more of a, you know, he, he left the project, you know, and now it's, you know, everybody else is the network. It's all the new developers. It's, you know, our quote unquote yeah. network now. Right. Uh, well, both. I mean, it's, it's definitely relevant because he, uh, you know, yeah, the, he, he put this system together and it, it functions rather well. Um, and on the flip side is that, yeah, he, he did leave and uh, we've learned a lot about the system since he's left. And I would go so far as to argue that we know more about Bitcoin today than Satoshi did when he left. Uh, and I bet you Satoshi would agree with that uh, if he were still around. Like, I don't think that he had the hubris to think he's omniscient or omnipotent. And um, look like it's something as simple. Oh, uh, so then also... I think that people paid too much attention to the white paper and not enough attention to the code and to how how the network actually behaved and continues to behave to this day. Um, but if you look in the code, like Satoshi had this vision of doing uh, off-chain micropayments like Lightning uh, using a feature called N-Sequence but it turned out that like his implementation didn't didn't work very well, and so uh, the Lightning Network is like an iteration on that. So, like to say that uh, Lightning is not part of Satoshi's vision, I, I find to be absurd because clearly it was. Uh, it was right there in the code base, and uh, he talked about micropayments, and um, 
So I don't, I don't think that, uh, I, I think that some of the criticism is like gets kind of ideological and political rather than, uh, based on, on the actual facts. Um, and yeah. And then I think that the, the other part of the vision that is disputable is, uh, Satoshi was saying that basically we would have, um, only miners running full nodes in data centers and, uh, there's no reason for anyone who is not a miner to be running a full node. Um, and I, I think that he just didn't foresee how, how easy it is to, uh, separate the functionality of mining from, uh, running a full node in that today, most miners are just providing hash rate and are not running a full node. Uh, it's the it's the pool operator that is running a Bitcoin full node. <coughs> so all this to say that like Satoshi didn't exactly uh, you know look into the future and see ASICs and uh, the mining pools and the current structure of the industry uh, and say oh this is my vision like that's not his vision was more like one CPU one vote. And I don't think he was thinking, you know, several chess piece moves ahead there, um, which means that essentially miners have uh, evolved into an entity that absolutely needed to have its power checked, uh, because if miners were indeed the only people running full nodes, uh, they could create more Bitcoins for themselves. And the only disincentive uh, for doing that is that, that that would reduce the value of Bitcoin uh, because of the inflation. But that that's kind of irrelevant to a miner because they're the first beneficiaries of the seniorage. And so the cost is actually uh, very dispersed among Bitcoin holders and the benefit is very concentrated on the Bitcoin miners. And so uh, just... That alone, you know, makes it clear to me that we we can't trust the miners to uh, do full validation. Uh, and in fact, like we have historical cases of miners, even even with a a, a pool operator like where they were doing uh, headers first mining, which is basically like uh, quote unquote SPV mining, um, where they're not doing full validation and they were mining invalid blocks. And so the idea that like Oh, non-mining nodes don't matter. All right, but mining non-nodes matter. Like there, there's kind of a weird asymmetry there, um, and it's clear that you do need to have non-mining nodes providing a check on on miners. Yeah, I was wondering if we could if we could expound on that a little bit, just for especially for people that are a little bit newer, because uh, the the so-called you know economic node or or whatever you want to call it that that you know you or I would run. Um, is something that uh, not all, but uh, quite a few, especially a lot of the vocal people on the big block side say aren't really that important. If it's that worth it to you, you can run it. And if it becomes too expensive, right, um, because blocks are too big, then it's obviously not important to you. But what what is the um, coming from the, you know, the off-chain scaling side and keeping the small block side um, or keeping the block small. What? Why is that such a, a kind of a force multiplier uh, per se to the network to have these economic nodes be you know economically viable for the average person? Yeah. So I, I kind of see it as like an issue of how many nodes do you need to be able to um, self-determine 
as as a whole, which is kind of it's it, this is the tricky part of consensus, um, the the consensus rules, uh, because basically, so the economic nodes, you know, the the way that's kind of used is like it's usually used to like refer to like large exchanges that are uh, using their full node to verify um, payments that they're receiving, uh, and in my mind, like the, 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 there's no distinction between an exchange that is doing that on the behalf of a million users and a million different users doing that on their own behalf by running their own node. Um, the, the difference is that in one, they are, the, the users are delegating all of that to the exchange, uh, and the other, they're not. So I, my view is that we should uh, prefer the latter uh, because the former becomes vulnerable to a number of different issues, whether it's government intervention um, or just the the exchange screwing over uh, customers by sending them fake bitcoins, um, or you know the the issue of the exchange uh, not having the right incentives aligned where essentially they're doing hard forks or participating in hard forks that are not to the benefit of the users. Uh, and the users have no ability to claim their coins on the other side of the fork. Um, so there, there's a number, number of different uh, kinds of scenarios. And like you, you can't fork, you can't do your own hard fork without running your own full node. Um, and you, you can do your own hard fork without mining. And I think that this is something that uh, goes unsaid a little too often, which is that people think that, oh, uh, if if you're not mining, then you have no ability to uh, impact the consensus rules because ultimately uh, the consensus rules for transactions go into blocks uh, and those blocks have to be you know mined by a miner. Uh, and... What they're missing in that in that uh, kind of flowchart is that uh, valid transactions accumulate in the mempool and have a transaction fee, uh, you know, on them that at some point gets so high that it incentivizes miners to go in and mine, uh, whether they uh, care about the fork or not. They're just doing it in a self-interested manner in order to profit, um, and so you can have a hard fork that starts with zero miners and has transactions accumulate in the mempool uh, until a miner eventually defects and decides that they're going to collect these transaction fees for themselves by mining blocks on this fork. Um, so uh, give, having a, a full node allows you to bootstrap a consensus change, whereas just having hash rate uh, is is really uh, completely useless. Like at, at the very least, you've got to have a node a a full node a pool operator that is going to uh, help you bootstrap, um, but really uh, you should just run a full node. Next, I want to kind of talk about Lightning Network because obviously, with wanting to keep the block size small, you you have to you know scale off chain, right? So, I mean, blockchain or uh, Lightning is is still you know not really viable yet. I mean, it, and it's you know admittedly uh by the folks working on it that it's you know it's not you know ready for consumer use or adoption right but um just looking at it uh the the way that i you know just have and i'm not a developer at all so I, it's harder for me because i can't look at the nuts and bolts right um but looking at it from a 
from the perspective also of the non-first world countries, right? So you and I wouldn't have that big of an issue. And even somebody on the lower end of the spectrum in the Western world probably be able to, to do this. But when you start talking about third world countries, um, things like running your own nodes, uh, being able to have funds to be able to open up channels, that sort of thing. I just, I have a hard time seeing where that's going to be an option until, you know, the eventual raising of the third world, you know, into into the first world status. Uh, what are your thoughts on how can Lightning Network or other solutions, you know, but with keeping the block small, still, you know, offer possibilities? Or is this going to be something that we just kind of seed to things like M-Pesa, um, or I don't know how to pronounce that, but the where the, the, the credit uh, or the um, cell phone um, company over there that trades basically uh, credits, yeah. SMS. Are, are we going to basically kind of seed that for the moment until we can get other solutions online? Or how do you see that working out? Yeah, um, so I think that the the... The Lightning Network is definitely on on mainnet. I mean, it's it's uh, live now and it's rapidly evolving, uh, and it's going to rapidly evolve into a direction where essentially a consumer will be able to send a payment to a merchant in a uh, trustless manner using Lightning, and essentially paying a negligible amount of fees. Like you wouldn't even really notice the fees that you're paying; they're so small. Um, and it would the payment would get sent instantly, and so I think that uh, that's where Lightning is evolving towards, and it's just a matter of time before uh, that's widely deployed and uh, usable in in any country with uh, bandwidth issues. Um, so I, I'm very optimistic in that regard. Uh, I think that there are definite downsides to Lightning, and uh, I don't think that transaction fees or or uh, routing fees uh, as, as they're called in lightning uh, would be a downside I think that that's going to be very affordable um, now in terms of uh, how like I, I don't know how uh, how in demand Bitcoin is going to be around the world uh, I, I think people have a lot of theories about it but in practice it seems to diverge from the theories a lot. <laughs> Um, and so like, uh, just to, to illustrate, uh, when I first started getting interested in Bitcoin in early 2013, there was the, uh, Cyprus bail-in. I don't know if you remember that. Oh yeah. Yep. Um, where basically like the banks were seizing like 15% of deposits or something. Um, and this was because they, yeah, they, they needed that money to like, uh, pay off or to keep the bank solvent. Um, in Everyone in Bitcoin was like, oh, look, we're going to have everyone in Cyprus using Bitcoin because they just went through this uh, terrible experience where their lack of financial sovereignty made them lose money. And you had like rumors going around on Reddit like, oh, uh, Bitcoin is the official currency of Cyprus now, like all, all sorts of things where people thought that there was mass adoption happening in Cyprus. But it, there there wasn't like it was all fake news so uh i think that you you kind of see this happen in news cycles where people and they they've also said this like about china like oh everyone's using uh bitcoin to uh route around capital controls in china and then you look at it and it's like no they're they're not they're like using antique furniture to do it <laughs> uh, 
So uh, there's there's always like hype about different use cases, and uh, the there there isn't like as serious work into figuring out. All right, what are use cases that people are actually using Bitcoin for, or actually using the broader you know ecosystem of crypto for? Um, I think people like don't think very rigorously about that because they know that uh, 99.99% of it is just speculation on exchanges. And so it's kind of irrelevant how many transactions per second your blockchain can do. If most of it, all, uh, most of the economic activity happens on trusted layer two, which is exchanges, you know, which I would contrast with trustless layer two, like lightning. Um, so yeah, uh, I think that even even if Lightning were to fail and people have to use exchanges in order to send money to each other, uh, I don't think that's the end of the world either. Like that's it's it's uh, less than it's it's a missed opportunity because you know there's no reason why a system like Lightning can't work, um, but it's not the end of the world for Bitcoin either. I guess, you know, talking with, with yourself and, and Giacomo, I guess it's kind of more of a people need to focus, be more patient, focus on the kind of big picture, the macro more than on the immediate micro. I Well, yeah, but I don't know about being more patient. Like I, I'm very impatient, but I also, um, I, I'm looking at what's in, immediately in front of us, right? Like you hear people say like, Oh, how are we going to onboard the next billion people onto Bitcoin? It's like, can we just focus on onboarding one person at a time? <laughs> like, uh, to me, it seems more like I, I'm impatient about onboarding the next user. I like that's what I'm impatient about. Um, onboarding the next billion users to me seems like kind of just you're not you're onboarding zero users by doing that because you're not doing anything useful. Yeah, I, I guess that kind of rolls into the, this this uh, kind of last question that I had for you, and I'd, I'd asked Giacomo it as well, and I, I wanted to hear your perspective on it. But kind of like my observation of humanity is that kind of people are inherently, I guess you know, lazy at least in the Western societies for a variety of reasons. Or I should say that people are more uh, attracted to solutions that have the least amount of friction, you know, kind of on the x-axis and kind of closest to their normal on the y-axis. If you can create a solution for, you know, for a problem that's easier uh, than what they're currently using and as close as possible to what they're already comfortable with. That's kind of usually what wins. And, you know, it, one of my concerns is that, you know, this is because we're such a young space, but 95% of the products and, you know, anything that we kind of have in this space is pretty clunky. It's hard to figure out. I think it's a lot to do with the fact that it's, it's very developer uh, focused that which a lot of the engineers in any kind of discipline I've ever met, they're very detail oriented. They're very intelligent, but they're not the best. Uh, generally speaking, with kind of understanding consumer trends and demands, I guess, um, and aesthetics. And you know, like Uber exploded because you know it, was, it, it saved us time. It was easy to figure out. You pushed a button, you sit on your couch. You didn't have to go and flag anything down. You didn't have to call up a cab company. And you just sat on your couch till it said it was there. You went down and you got in, right? And you know, same thing with email. Email eventually beat it, beat out snail mail because it was easy and it became familiar. And with the store of value thesis, 
and and if lightning is supposed to be kind of you know roughly my daily spender you know what i buy my uh, the proverbial cup of coffee with um how well do you think it's going to compete you know with something like mastercard has been talking about doing their own you know blockchain blockchain you know token whatever they're talking about doing and when all you have to do is go online, sign up for one of the cards, pay your bill, it's done versus, say, you know, setting up your own full node, transferring Bitcoin to the network, opening up a channel, all that kind of stuff, watchtowers. Um, and I guess it, it just sounds like a lot of work for the average person to implement compared to spending you know, two minutes on a MasterCard website. And people want that easier, familiar solution. And I believe that Bitcoin is going to win definitely in the long run. I think it's better. Uh, I think it's sound money and that that's, you know, a mixture of economics and I guess faith, I guess in a way as well. But um, big, you know, but gold was sound money. It was better than fiat. And for the last 60 years, other than, you know, small groups of libertarians like ourselves and, you know, some probably right wing preppers, no one really embraced it um, as a store of value outside of, you know, uh, some sort of ETF, maybe in a balanced portfolio. So, Sorry for kind of going on long, but why do you think, given that with gold's failure to kind of you know win out as that that, that true store of value, or or as um, that people would hold their money versus uh, in an IRA, why do you think Bitcoin and Lightning Network are going to win where gold or other measures couldn't? Yeah, uh, so I think that the problem with gold is that it was not hard enough, essentially. Um, and if you kind of think about like Bitcoin's difficulty adjustment, uh, it, it occurs every two weeks to, to readjust the, uh, balance between the hash rate and the, you know, coins getting created, blocks getting created. Um, gold doesn't really have a difficulty adjustment or it, it's difficulty adjustment is much looser than Bitcoin's. And so, when you get into a situation where gold is appreciating in value versus an, another money, uh, it starts getting more resources dedicated to mining it and more gold gets produced. And then it has a dampening effect on the dynamic of a sound money accruing value versus uh, fiat. And we kind of saw that in during the 70s, right? Like there was a window of opportunity where gold was competing against the dollar and could have uh, caused the dollar to to collapse if it had continued along its route, its trajectory. But on, on the dollar side, you had Paul Volcker come in and dramatically increase interest rates. Like yep. today, interest rates are like 0%. Uh, Paul Volcker increased them to 20% uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and so that reestablished the credibility of the U.S. dollar's monetary policy um, after it had gotten trashed by the inflation during the 70s. Uh, and on uh, so that's kind of on the dollar side. And on the gold side, like more and more gold was coming onto the market. Uh, and there's not like a, a it doesn't have the soundness that the Bitcoin has. So I think that just at the very least, uh, Bitcoin would cause fiat currencies to have to dramatically improve their monetary policy, uh, much as gold has. Um, now, Bitcoin has other advantages over gold, uh, whether it's you know from a, uh, a cryptographic primitives perspective of like you can't do multi-sig with gold. Uh, moving a billion dollars worth of gold is 
much more expensive than moving a hundred million dollars worth of gold or 10 million or 1 million um, and so on. Uh, so in terms of moving uh, value, you have to pay as a percentage of the value. Whereas with Bitcoin, you pay based on how much data you're consuming on the network. And so you could be moving a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin and it could be consuming as much data as moving $20 worth of Bitcoin. Um, and so that, that, that dramatically lowers the cost of making high value settlement transactions, uh, which I think that ultimately like that, that helps in hampering gold from becoming a real competitor versus the dollar, right? Because the dollar, uh, became digitized, uh, in, in the 20th century, I guess probably like the banking system along with the banking system in the sixties and seventies. Uh, and so the, the dollar was decreasing its transaction costs, whereas gold was not decreasing its transaction costs, right? It's, it's always going to cost the same amount to, to ship it and to secure it and store it. Um, so uh, it, it was very hard for gold to compete, whether it's on monetary policy or on the underlying payment system that it uh, provides. Uh, I think that Bitcoin stands a much better chance at competing uh, on both fronts, um, whether it's payments or monetary policy. I think that the contrast with um, an app like Uber is that uh, you don't have the holding and investing side of things and the speculation side of things. And that's where it gets really messy in that uh, human psychology is just not designed for dealing with massive wild swings in value. Uh, it causes us to, to emotionally go from like mania to depression. Um, so I think that uh, when, when Uber was increasing in popularity, the people who were... Uh, Shareholders in Uber went through an emotional roller coaster of you know having their investment dramatically increase in value, uh, but the users of Uber did not, and so it did not affect how they used Uber <laughs> that, uh, that Uber was being very successful. Um, that's not the case in Bitcoin at all. Uh, the The users are people who hold Bitcoins and who are using the the Bitcoin network to transfer value, and as as the value of Bitcoins dramatically swings it dramatically affects the uh, users of the underlying system and either attracts new users or causes existing users to churn and to no longer be interested in it because they were attracted by the price, right? So it's uh, the, the I, I think that the Bitcoin price is a big driver in its adoption and, in fact, like the premier driver of adoption, not not any other aspect of the payment system or even of the monetary policy because the price is essentially uh you know downstream from the monetary policy and it's what people see on CNBC like CNBC doesn't talk about oh bitcoin has you know sound money blah blah like CNBC talks about how bitcoin went up 30% or 50% or 100% like that's what gets uh, eyeballs and gets uh people interested in it um and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like I got interested in it because of the price as well, uh, and it's it's good. It's a good way to bait people into uh, into this giant um, multi-level marketing Ponzi scheme where you have to learn about uh, economics and cryptography <laughs> and uh, computer science. 
Yeah, no, that's, I, I think uh, you, you said, was it about 2013 is when you? Yeah, yeah. And and so I, I would not expect Bitcoin to become mainstream until uh, it actually causes the US dollar to collapse and then people don't really have any other choice. Uh, I don't think that it's going to be like, uh, driven by anything else. Well, I, I know that you got to get going and I, I really appreciate your time. Uh, was there any closing thoughts that you had? Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, go to uh, noted.org, N-O-D-E-D.org to uh, subscribe to our podcast um, and follow me on Twitter at Pierre underscore Rochard. Uh, and also follow my co-host, Michael Goldstein, at Bitstein um, and follow the uh, Nakamoto Institute on Twitter as well. Uh, Michael has been updating the Nakamoto Institute to have more and more uh, content and also better user interface. So you can check out everything that Satoshi wrote as long as well as with a bunch of other authors. Uh, so that, those would be my shout outs. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. This was a fun interview. Well, thanks again. I'll put all of the contact information, everything you mentioned in the show notes. And once again, Pierre, thank you very much. Awesome. Bye.